Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hey, if we've done our math correctly, this is our 40th episode, Wendy. Wow, that's awesome. You were looking at me like I'm not supposed to let anybody know what number. Did I mess up? You misread he's, me entirely. He's looking over, <laughs> Wendy's looking over at our faithful studio man, Bill Howard over there. Did it, should I not have, are we not supposed to be numbering? Anyway, <laughs> next topic. I think it's number 40. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Yes, we're so happy to be here with you and to be serving the body of Christ in this little way through our podcast. And I know you've been doing so many things over the years, traveling so many places. And I'm just curious if you could share something about, I don't know, like a favorite place that you've gotten to go because of your work. Yeah, I have several. I mean, it's when I look back at all these years of travel, there's a flood of memories of really good meals with really good people. How nice. Those are some of the most special memories I have. Uh-huh sitting down after a long day of teaching and meeting really, really good people who've done such an amazing job, you know, promoting events and really believe in what we're doing and, and want to share the message mm-hmm. with others. Mm-hmm. And then after, you know, mission accomplished, we'll go out for a meal or they'll bring us back, bring the team back to their home and, and make a good meal. And good food, good people, good beer, good conversation. <laughs> Those are great memories. Mm-hmm. But if I think of a place in particular, 10 years ago was the first time I was invited to Hawaii. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Hawaii was a special, a special trip. I was in a really tough place at the time, going through a lot of hard stuff personally. And Hawaii was just a balm, B-A-L-M. I always spell that when I use the word. I think I used the word in the last episode. Mm, but you're cautious that it's I'm caught, not, it, doesn't it doesn't sound come right. Like bomb, uh-huh. like B O M B. Right. Uh, so it was it was a special special gift to my heart, and not just the. You know, you're in Hawaii. Of course, it's awesome. The ocean was awesome, but more awesome for my heart was learning that there was this creek with a waterfall, not far from where I was staying, and they pointed us to the trailhead. And I was told that there's this gorgeous waterfall. You got to walk like three or four miles to get to it. But I didn't care. I'm going for it. And I was just a man on a mission to get to this waterfall. And we get to this waterfall back in the middle of this tropical yeah. Hawaiian forest, mm-hmm. just something like out of a movie. In fact, if you watch the video for Jason Mraz's I'm Yours, uh-huh. that song, yes. he filmed that video. Part of that video at the same waterfall. At the same waterfall. Oh wow! The same waterfall, and there, and there's these huge. It was like a forty or fifty foot jump off the side of this tropical, yeah, cliff into this little swimming hole at the bottom of a gorgeous Hawaiian waterfall, and that was singing to me, baby. That was oh, that's beautiful. A sacramental reality mm-hmm. for me there. Mm-hmm. You asked. That's my answer. I like that answer. I'd like to see that waterfall someday. Someday. I'd like to take you there. Could you take me? That would be great. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Shall I share a question sure. from one of our students? I've been spending way too much time chicken my t- Sorry. Now I got that song in my yeah. head. Yeah. <laughs> Jason Raz. 
Okay. Well, this actually relates to the time you referenced in your Hawaii story. The student asks, what are... Are these, are these questions, again, from the Cleveland TOB1 class? Yes. Okay. Because I told my students I would be looking at... We would together would be looking at these questions. Mm-hmm. So, here we Got go. Got some more. What are some of the lessons you've learned about how you present theology of the body from listening to your critics? Mm. How have you changed your approach based on feedback you've received? Yeah, great, great question. I'm happy to answer it. I always tell my students, especially those who want to go into ministry, to listen to their critics because you can learn a lot. Even if, you know, even if they're coming from a place where, shall we say, it's not so much a loving criticism, but a critical criticism. I've had plenty of those. Even those you can learn from. If I look back at my career and think of where I was when I started in the 90s and where I am today, the analogy I've used is I was a, I was not a very good dancer when I started out. And I had a lot of zeal and a lot of ideas in my head that I wanted to communicate, but I hadn't learned how to communicate them in such a way that they could be best received. And I would come out with something that I thought was really beautiful and important, but didn't realize how I was kind of my own feedback loop, like I, it made sense to me, but mm-hmm. I had to learn how my audience reacted to things and enter that dance. And I was stepping on a lot of toes or I would dip my students without really looking in their eyes and seeing, are they ready for a dip in the dance? And so I've learned how to do that a little, a little better over the years. Mm-hmm. And one example would be nuances and qualifications that are required when you teach on these delicate matters. For example, John Paul II says that it's not only that we image God as individuals, but that right from the beginning, man and woman image God through the call to communion and the call of the two be fruitful and multiply. We see an image of the Trinitarian life there. This is a very important point of John Paul II's teaching. Some people in the church don't even like that. They don't even want to go there because this is this is a dramatic development of Catholic theology. Mm. And a lot of theologians out there today are doing the necessary work of connecting the dots between what the church fathers said, what Thomas Aquinas said, and the whole way up to our present day to, sh- to demonstrate the organic development that we have here. Uh, so, that, that theological work is very important. But... When you plop out an idea, for example, that the sexual embrace, and here I'm, here's the nuance, is in some way or is in a certain sense an icon of the inner life of the Trinity, if you don't add certain qualifiers, I would say early on people were getting the wrong impression. Not that I didn't have the right understanding in my own head, but I, I wasn't communicating. I was taking too much for granted. Mm-hmm. For example, this is a qualification I will always use now because it's important. And it's a qualification that was lacking in some of my earlier work, that God is not sexual. Mm -hmm. We can't take the human ideas and just expand them infinitely and think we understand God. Heaven, we can use spousal love and spousal union and even the joy of spousal love and spousal union as an analogy of the heavenly reality. But if we don't make the proper qualifications about the nature of analogy, for example, Uh, You'll always see this in the writings of John Paul II. You'll see it in the writings of all the great theologians. Whenever we use analogy, we're talking about a certain similarity 
that we're zooming in on to make a point, but we always have to keep in mind there's an ever greater dissimilarity mm-hmm. between the creator and the creature. John of the Cross says, don't rejoice in what you do know about God, rejoice in what you don't know about God, because what you don't know about God is far more beautiful than what you do know. Wow. And that just keep thing, well, keeps great. things... Yeah, it keeps things in its proper perspective. We, If you think you understand God, you don't understand God. Uh, it's a sure sign that you don't, because if you understand it, it's not God. I remember also, here's another example of just some nuance I've added over time. You know, I used to just jump right out and say, well, in heaven, we're all going to be naked, you know, because it's going to be a restoration of the original plan of God. And in the beginning, they were naked without shame. And I would just plop that out there without qualification or nuance. And and I've, I've learned to be a little more, you know, there's there's a theological point that can be made and should be made. But... I've never been on the other side. I don't Mm -hmm. know. And saints who have had an image of the afterlife or kind of dipped in and then come back in their mystical prayer lives, when they've been asked, were they wearing clothing? Saints say things like, I don't know. I didn't even, didn't even dawn on me to, to wonder what I saw. If they were wearing clothing, it was not to conceal anything. And if they weren't wearing clothing, it was so integrated and beautiful that there was no, it just wasn't even a thought. So, you know, that's a new, more nuanced position than just to plop it out there. Well, you know, we're going to be naked in eternity. Mm. You know, so there's a theological point I was trying to make, but I was making it without nuance. Yeah. So nuance for the theologian is important. It's important for all of us, of course, right. but especially as a teacher, I've learned I mean, you can nuance things to death uh-huh. to the point that you no longer have a real substantial point you're making, and, and that can drive me crazy. But nuance is important to qualify what you're saying to help your listener avoid misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a combination of things that you're sharing. Yes, the comments of critics, but also just the honest questions of listeners sure. and feedback that maybe doesn't even isn't intended to be critical, but just to express this confuses me or this challenges me or, you know, all of that you're kind of learning from as you continue to go forward and teach. And I, you know, admire you and everyone who just jumps in and starts knowing that you will make mistakes and to not get utterly discouraged when someone is critical, but to take the good that you can get from that and then keep going. Absolutely. It's it's been a a really important lesson for me to look back at my early work and not just dismiss it as I was so young and didn't know what I was doing. Because we all have to start somewhere and, you know, crawl, walk, run. When your infant is learning to walk and falls over, the parent doesn't scold the child Mm -hmm. for trying to learn how to walk, right? So, you help the child learn how to walk. And Back to my analogy, you help someone learn how to dance. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I am grateful to my critics for helping me become a better teacher. Mm. That's good. Here's another question. Okay. It's a quick one. Please explain, and now this is in quotes, disinterested gift of self. Yeah. So, John Paul II uses this expression quite a bit that we are we are called to make a disinterested gift of ourselves disinterested does not mean you're not interested in the person it means rather you're interested but not in a self-serving way that's 
disinterested. It's the opposite of selfish. So is it an unselfish gift? It's an unselfish gift. The Second Vatican Council, this is where John Paul II draws so much of what he teaches in the theology of the body from the council's document, Gaudium et Spes, the paragraph is 24, where we read that the Lord Jesus opened up vistas closed to human reason. In other words, you can't know this just by thinking on it. Mm -hmm. Only revelation reveals and teaches us that there is a comparison. And there we're back to our other point about analogy, analogy, right? There's an analogy between the communion and self-giving in the Trinity and our call to love in the image of God, right? The fulfillment of the gospel, love one another as I have loved uh, you. Yes. So Jesus, this is the line from the Second Vatican Council, Gaudium et Spes is the document, paragraph 24. Jesus opened up vistas closed to human reason when he drew a certain likeness between the persons of the Trinity and the communion of God's children in truth and love. So he says, Jesus says, as the Father and I are one, so are you called to be one. Mm-hmm. The as is yeah. the analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Is, the, is the link. And then the council goes on to say, if the human being is the only creature willed for its own sake, what does that mean? All of creation, the rest of creation, is willed and created by God for our sake. We can use creation for our own benefit. We shouldn't abuse mm-hmm. or abuse creation. But I don't violate the dignity of a tree by cutting it down to build a house, right? But the human being is the kind of person that is willed for its own sake. Then it follows, the council says, if the human being is the only creature willed for its own sake, it follows that the human being can only find himself through the sincere gift of self. It's the same idea of disinterested gift of self, the sincere gift of self. That Mm -hmm. means you are a person. I am. Yes, you are. Yes. Good to know. Uh, Very important for me to know, because if I don't respect the fact that you're a person, and there are inclinations in me as a fallen human being that are inclined not to respect you as a person. Mm -hmm. In other words, not to respect you as a creature made for your own sake. Mm -hmm. If I treat you as a creature made for my sake, then I might start bossing you around. I might start saying, you exist for to please me. And mm-hmm. why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z to please me? And then I might impose my will on your will and refuse to honor that you have your own desires and your own will. Mm-hmm. So when you have two persons who are made each for their own sake, yet they're made to be in communion, mm-hmm. The only way you and I can live in communion, I can't dominate you, I can't control you without violating your dignity. How can I participate in your personhood? How can you participate in my personhood without us violating each other's dignity? Only through the sincere or disinterested gift of self. When I choose to be a gift to you, there's a big difference between you choosing to be a gift to me by, say, making dinner which you make awesome dinners, by the way. I'm so grateful. Thanks, love. And Wendy's not the only one who cooks in the family. No, that's true. But when you cook, it's awesome. I love it. It's the best. I love it. (laughs) Uh, If you know what that movie is, you can let us know. (laughs) What was I saying? Oh, there's a big difference between you 
making dinner for your family as a gift that flows from your freedom and my demanding that you make dinner or forcing you to do it. And if you don't do it, then X, Y, and Z. So one is living the gift of self. The other is living under tyranny. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why I went off on all that. What was the question? This is disinterested, right? So <laughs> when you when you make dinner in that way, my wife is laughing and leaning over away from her microphone because she's because what? Because you're amusing me. Go right ahead, continue. <laughs> I think my point has been made sufficiently well. I don't need to rehash it all. So one of the reasons people have a hard time with that expression, disinterested gift of self, is what you said at the very beginning, that it sounds like we're called to have no particular interest in the people that we right, love. Which is not at all. Which is not what it means. And that's the confusion, I think, right. that tends to come. But the sense of making a gift of ourselves, I think, has always you know, been a source of sort of a, a fire within us yes, to, yes. to recognize that each of us is created uniquely with gifts that God gave only to us and that we're called to share that with one another in a particular way as a married couple, but also we are absolutely called to share that in other relationships, in our family of origin, even children are called to be a gift to others. Um, it's a universal call. And it's so tempting to give the gift with the hope of, you know, getting something back, mm -hmm. getting some kind of affirmation, feeding our pride or, you know, feeling superior to someone, all these sort of fallen desires that get in the mix. And that disinterested is that free from all that. Yes, yes. Like, just a genuine sharing of goodness of God flowing through me to others, being received, praising Him for that, and receiving even a genuine joy from that exchange without grasping at yes. something greater than what it's meant to be. It's all, you experience yourself in the Lord's hands and others in the Lord's hands, and there's a free flow of that human giftedness. That's a blessing. It's one of those game changers from I learned it from John Paul II. He got it from the Second Vatican Council. And some, it wouldn't surprise me if it's true, some surmise that he may have actually written this paragraph in the council because mm -hmm. he was at the council. But when I first started reading John Paul's teachings in the early 90s, and I would come across this over and over and over again, man can only find himself through the sincere gift of self. It was one of those statements that just kind of shifts the way you see the world, shifts the way you see your relationships, it shifts the way you deal with struggles to be selfish. Like you were saying earlier, and I think it's really true, it's become, that truth has become a little fire in us. Mm -hmm. And it gets us out of bed in the morning, mm -hmm. gets us out of bed in the middle of the night when mm -hmm. one of our kids needs us. Right. If you really let that sink in, there's an illusion that I'm going to be happy by serving myself in this situation. Mm -hmm. If I really believe, let that truth sink in, and experience will confirm it, that you really do become more yourself. You really do find the happiness you're looking for, not by grasping and serving yourself, but by being a gift to others. When experience confirms that truth, it becomes more and more fuel for whenever you run into another pocket of your own selfishness, 
It could be as simple as you're serving, you're serving dessert, and there's that piece of the pecan pie with the perfect amount of pecans on the top, perfectly roasty and toasty, and you want that piece for yourself, which is fine in and of itself. But you also know your son wants that very same piece. <laughs> and then there's the battle. What am I going to do? Am I going to take that for myself? Or am I going to make a sincere gift of myself because I'm serving up the dessert? And I can say, you know what? I know Isaac wants that piece. So I'm going to give that to Isaac. And yeah, there's a little death there. It's a little, little death, but there's a death. But, but learning, no, 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 that's, that's I want to, yes. And there's joy in that. There's freedom in that. Mm-hmm. Real freedom. It's just a little silly example, but it maybe not so silly because it goes deep, that stuff. Next question. This student asks, so is there really a place called hell? Or is hell what we experience when body and soul are divided? Is there really a place called hell or is hell what we experience when body and soul are divided? Okay. I actually do remember this question from the week it had come up for the group this, these questions, again, are taken from the TOB1 class that we recently taught in Ohio. Well, I want to, if I may, rephrase the question. Is hell real? Yes. The possibility of hell is real. What do we know of hell? I'd urge you to look up in the uh, index of the catechism. Just look up the word hell and you'll get the straight teaching from the Catechism of the Catholic Church on hell. Is hell the separation of body and soul? Well, death is the separation of body and soul. But Scripture speaks of resurrection, both for those who go to heaven and for those who don't. So, in light of that Scripture, and I don't have the chapter and verse, But some, I think it's Paul who says, some are raised unto glory and some are raised unto destruction. So in that sense, hell will be a bodily reality. It will be a bodily separation from God, whereas heaven will be a bodily participation in the life of God. Is hell a place? It's not place in the sense that we understand place here on planet Earth. It's not like you can point to a map and say, there's hell. But it is, it is rather an eternal state of separation from God that includes the whole human being, body and soul. But let me say this, because there's so, so many questions around the hell question, and I want to make some clarifications that I think are important. Number one, God does not send anyone to hell. Hell is the natural consequence of God's respect for our freedom. Freedom is real. If freedom is real, then hell is real. Because if freedom is real, then freedom is a choice, ultimately, not just between temporal good and evil, but between eternal good and evil, separation from God. Eternally is what I mean by an eternal evil. I don't mean an eternal evil as if evil has existed from all eternity. Evil is only the corruption of a good. But here's another 
conclusion we can draw from the fact that the possibility of hell is the necessary consequence of God's respect for our freedom. The other conclusion is this. Oftentimes people will say, well, if God is love, if God is all loving, there can't possibly be a hell. But it's exactly because God really, really loves us Mm -hmm. that the possibility of hell is real. And again, spousal theology here illuminates the point. What do I mean? If heaven is going to be a marriage, this is what spousal theology understands, and it's right out of Scripture. Heaven is described in the book of Revelation as the wedding of the Lamb, where Christ and the church are wed. If marriage is a wedding, well, it's not going to be a shotgun wedding. It's Mm. not going to be forced. Right. Which means we have the freedom to say no to God's wedding proposal. If God forced us to marry him, we could not say God is love. It's God's love for us. And this is back to what we were saying earlier about the person is the only creature made for its own sake. Mm -hmm. John Paul II in Love and Responsibility says, if it is out of the question for human beings to use one another for their own ends, then it is also out of the question for God to use us as a means to our own end, which means God has perfect respect for the freedom that he gave us, which means we have the freedom to say no to God's wedding proposal. If we didn't, he wouldn't really love us. So the possibility of hell is the possibility of our freedom and God's respect for our freedom is the proof of his love, not the negation of his love. In Mm. other words, the existence of hell demonstrates God really loves us. He really honors our freedom. This is not a tyrannical situation. This is God, a personal God, who is freedom, respecting the creature he made upon whom he bestowed freedom. Yeah. All this, see, all these questions come up when we ask questions about hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, questions of who is God? Who are we? What is existence? What is freedom? What is a human being? Yeah, God honors our freedom. Any thoughts to share on that? I think it's an interesting challenge for us, I think, to understand could any person really choose that? It's on the other side. Yeah. It's, you know, veiled in some mystery over there. And we've certainly heard of this through teaching about our faith or reading scripture pondering some of the philosophy that is connected with freedom and our freedom to really choose, looking at the world and some of the sufferings and the causes of sufferings, all these like human questions can lead us to this one. Hell? Yeah. And yeah, there is a feeling of a little bit of a mystery because we're here, and it's in this other realm. Yeah. We're not there yet. But I really like that you're linking it in that way to God's love. And I think if we take the time, we can really see that we can't truly love if we aren't free to not love. That's right. That's the point. And that's kind of what this all, as you were saying, gets to. Two final points I want to make there. Number one, we've been given this prayer by the Blessed Mother, Our Lady of Fatima, told the children to pray, lead all souls to heaven. Mm. 
especially those in most need of thy mercy. Save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven. So if that's a prayer right out of the Blessed Mother's heart, it's a prayer we could and should be praying that all souls in the final analysis, in the final blink of an eye, when the decision kind of comes to light, that can we not conclude? I think we have to conclude that everyone will see the love of God and be able to, to choose. They'll see it and be able to choose. I mean, it's we see here dimly as in a mirror. We have to maintain it's possible to choose against it, but we can and should pray according to the very heart of the Blessed Mother that all souls would be saved from the fires of hell and all souls would be led to heaven. So that point I want to make, and then finally this point. If it really does come down to our freedom that God has given us, and we really can make the decision, I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses, choose. Here's my suggestion. Choose life. Mm-hmm. Choose blessings. Choose heaven. Choose love. Choose it. Choose that. Well, what is love? That's another question. Mm-hmm. Christ reveals to us what love is. Uh, we don't make up what love is. And that brings us right back to the freedom question, which is what is freedom? It's not freedom to invent good and evil. It's freedom to choose between them. Mm-hmm. We don't invent what good is and what evil is. That's a tree from which we are not free to eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the limits of the creature. We didn't invent this world. We don't determine. We don't get to determine what good and evil is. Good and evil is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's what God made it to be. It's what is revealed by God. It's not something we invent. So the freedom we have is to choose between good and evil. Let us trust that what God has provided through Christ and through his church is the revelation of what is good and what is evil. And let's choose what is good. If we do that, we have every confidence God's graces are at work and we will see him face to face. Amen. Amen to that. We would love to see you guys face to face as well. And there are some opportunities that I would like to share with you to enable that to happen. We have a Theology of the Body Level 1 course coming up in November, November 17th to the 22nd. We also have a pilgrimage coming up to the Holy Land from February 15th to the 25th. That's another way to do it. Consider that. Take it to prayer. See if you're meant to come on either of those events. Also, just go to theologyofthebody.com. We'll put the link there. And click on our events, and maybe our Made for More event will be coming to an area near you. That would be another way to see each other face-to-face. And if you come to any of those events and you are a listener of our podcast, please come up, say hello to me, and just say, Christopher, I learned about this event through your podcast, and I'm really glad that I did. And I'm really glad that you did, too. Hope to meet you face-to-face someday. Until then, please remember always, always, you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. 
Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. Mark, pause. You can edit this out. I have not been watching the clock. How much time do we have left on this episode, Bill? Do you know? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay, good. Okay. Resume, Mark. Here we go. Zippity doo dad, zippity day. <laughs> Oops. That's going to end up at the end of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so is that. <laughs>